girl next door. Dun 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 dun. Girl <laughs> next door. Podcast. To- Podcast. Oh, that's like right after our other music anyway, but that's yeah. okay. How's it going, Steph? I'm good. Hey, Tamara. Welcome to Curl Next Door, everybody. Welcome, episode everybody. Episode 11. 11. No, nothing. episode 12. Episode 12. 12. Amazing. <laughs> that seems like a great accomplishment somehow. Yeah. I mean, it'll be, it'll be very exciting to do like episode 100, <laughs> episode 20, 500. 500, like some of these podcasts. Wow, they just keep going and going. You think yeah. my favorite murder, are they going to run out of murders eventually? <laughs> I don't think so. Because <laughs> they also talk about, I survived. Yes. It's not always someone who passed away. That's true. I listened to an episode where they focused on Jessica, the girl that fell down the well. Oh, I didn't Which hear had that nothing episode. to do with a murder. But At it all. was this, ma- yeah, it was just this massive. Do you remember Jessica, that story? We would have been little kids. It was in the early 80s. Yeah. I feel like if I listened to that episode of their podcast, it would probably come back to me. I I like that notion. I like some of the episodes that are a little bit less obvious than famous serial killers. Yeah. And as far as we're concerned, I mean, everyone on the planet has hair. Well, actually, that's not quite true. (laughs) 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 Well, now we have to cancel the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We thought they all had hair and they don't. That's right. But there's a lot of people with curly hair. There's a lot of interesting stories about people with curly hair. And there's a, everyone who has curly hair wants to know what the heck to do with it. That's, oh, that's for sure. Including yeah. me. And me. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we're not on video today because you don't want to see my hair. Don't even get me started. This is lockdown hair. Ay, ay, ay. Do you have a schedule? A schedule that you wash by or co-wash or style it at all? No. Do you? Well, I I try and do it every third or fourth day. So I'm not washing it more than it should be. But then what happens is, so in a couple days, I'm doing a TV segment and I couldn't wash my hair today or yesterday because then I would have to wash it again too soon. So it was like I'm timing it all around that because I need to wash it and style it the night before, I guess. And then I have reasonably fresh day two hair, day two curls. For yeah. TV. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Sometimes you have to do a wash schedule, work back schedule. A work exactly. Based it, on, oh yeah, Thursday AM, I have a meeting and I want it to look this way. And then yeah, you have to go backwards. We need to come up with an it's we need a name for it. Is it the hair the wash work back schedule or the something? Because it's true and I've never put a name on it, but it it's always in my mind. Well, do you wanna Do you want to just dive in? It's your turn to go first. Okay, I will. I will. Let's not talk about hairstyling at all because I have a really good story for you and I'm very excited about this. Okay. And I hope it's it's also not too long because there's a lot of interesting information. Okay. So you may or may not know that when I was a teenager, I did a lot of acting. Well, not that much, but I had an agent and I did some commercials and community theater and independent films and things like that. And I also took the history of film in high school. And then my boyfriends, basically from my mid-teens to early 20s, were all actors, which is a really bad idea in general, but it fit who I was at the time. 
Mm -hmm. So I fell in love with Charlie Chaplin in history of film class in grade 10 or 11. And then later on, I had a boyfriend and I loved Chaplin and he loved Buster Keaton. And it was all, we understood the the foundation of (laughs) acting, where acting came from. And it was like two sides of a coin, but you can't really talk about those guys without talking about Mary Pickford. Oh, good one. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So Gladys Louise Smith was known professionally as Mary Pickford. She was a Canadian-American film actress and producer with a career that spanned five decades, a true pioneer in the American film industry. She co-founded Pickford Fairbanks Studios and United Artists and was one of the 36 founders of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Say what? She founded all that stuff as a oh, woman? Oh, yes. All those yes. years ago? Oh, yes. She so, was in the club. She created part she of that created. Club. She created what we know today as acting, film, and Hollywood. And I would argue that she's one of the most important businesswomen of the 20th century. When I first saw her in silent movies as a teenager, I thought she was a, a famous silent film actress. She's so much more than an actress. Yeah, so I think many people know the name Mary Pickford as being an actress. But yes, this is the first I've ever heard of her being more than that. That's so interesting. Okay, continue. Okay, okay. Cited as America's sweetheart during the silent film era, and also she was known as Girl with the Curls, she was one of the Canadian pioneers in early Hollywood and a significant figure in the development of film acting because film acting was different than over-the-top stage acting. And I mean, I guess it still is. It but still is, yeah. Defining yeah, yeah. itself as what it was. So she was one of the earliest stars to get billed under her own name. The first actress to ask for and get a million-dollar contract and was one of the most popular actresses of the te- teens and 20s. And she had the nickname Queen of the Movies. A million dollars. What what year are we talking about here? The twenties. I I'll get to it. Okay. I'll get it wasn't for one movie, it was for a contract, but still it was a long time ago. She's credited with having defined the ingenue type in cinema. Uh, and she was also the first actor to ever have script approval and choice of director in her contract. Cool. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I'm enunciating everything because I so love her. She was awarded the second Academy Award for Best Actress for her first sound film role in Coquette in 1929. And she also received an um, honorary award in 76. Like that was her contributions to American cinema. But let's go back to the beginning. She was born in 1892 at... 211 University Avenue in Toronto, basically right where Sick Kids Hospital is now. And I don't think I've seen it, but if you go down there, there's a plaque somewhere. She had two younger sis- siblings, Lottie and Jack, who kind of also became actors. And when she was four, her house was under infectious quarantine as a public health measure. Does, does that sound familiar? Yeah, but for what? <laughs> Just her house. No, I think there were there were different a lot of flus going around and 
I don't, I think there were multiple households, but uh, all this to say that she had a Catholic grandmother who asked a visiting Roman Catholic priest to baptize the kids, I guess, because she was, the grandmother was worried they'd all die and they should be blessed and baptized. So she was baptized Gladys Marie Smith. So Marie, like, will come into play later. Her father was a total drunk and they were very poor and he died when she was pretty young. And basically, I'll get to this, but she was the one in the house who had some marketable skills. So after her mother was widowed, she began taking on boarders and one of them was a stage manager. And he suggested that Gladys and her sister be given small theatrical roles in a production of The Silver King at Toronto's Princess Theatre. And their mother played the organ. So (laughs) So her career started because of a tenant in the house. And because they needed to make money and her alcoholic father died and her mother was, well, what are we going to do? Little Gladys is pretty cute. (laughs) Wow. That's okay. Keep going. That's exciting. Yeah. So, and this is all in Toronto too. That's what's cool about it also. So she finally got a a leading child role in, she started doing productions with Toronto's Valentine Stock Company. And then she had a starring role of Little Eva in Uncle Tom's Cabin in Toronto. However, by the early 1900s, they were starting to make money and her mother decided to take the kids on the on the road. Basically, they toured all over the U- US in kind of third-rate theater companies and whatever play they could get into. And basically after 6 years, Mary or sorry, well her name's still Gladys Pickford said Okay, one more summer to land a leading role on Broadway. At this point, you're from Toronto. The dream is is New York stage. She says, if I don't get a leading role, I'm going to quit acting. But she did. So she landed a supporting role in a 1907 Broadway play, The Warrens of Virginia. And the producer insisted that she assume the stage name Mary Pickford. So we don't know where Pickford came from, but it was basically chosen for her. And we know Marie was like her middle baptized name. Okay. And how old is she by this point? It's 1907 and she was born in 1892. So she is seven plus eight. She's 15 years old. Got it. Okay. Okay. So she's 15, finally in a great role on Broadway. In April of 1909, the Biograph Company director, who you may have heard of, D.W. Griffith, screen tested her for a role in a movie. And she didn't get the role, but he was taken by her. And he, he just was very impressed with her. And she kind of got this notion that movie acting was simpler than stage acting. So she just, I think it clicked for her the intimacy or what have you, of the technology of the time of film, but it made sense to her. So most actors working for Biograph earned $5 a day, but after one day in the studio, Griffith agreed to pay her double that, a guarantee of $40 a week. And it's, you know, 1909. Yeah, that's a lot of money. She had a je ne sais quoi that impressed him. Well, and at the time, if film... It's silent. So she's doing a lot with her body language. She was good at that. Is that the idea? Yeah. I feel like their faces had to be so expressive. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, definitely it's more subtle than the stage, but if you look at silent film acting now, it does seem over the top. (laughs) Yeah, like I guess where I'm going with this is stage acting and silent movie acting really do feel like two different disciplines because one, you don't use your voice. Yeah. So you have to be so expressive. Right. But she was able to make the switch. Yeah. She transitioned. And then I think she's growing also because she's getting in an industry in its infancy. So she Mm. kind of grows with it. Let me take you along, take you along this journey. So she, like all the other actors at Biograph, she played small and big parts, bit parts, leading roles, mothers, ingenues, spitfires, spurned women, and a prostitute. And as Pickford said of her success at Biograph, I played scrub women and secretaries. I decided that if I could get into as many pictures as possible, I'd become known and there would be a demand for my work. She appeared in 51 films in 1909. That's almost one a week. Yeah. We think we're busy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure they weren't all long. I'm sure some of them were very, very short, but still. With her first starring role being in The Violin Maker of Cremona opposite her future husband, Owen Moore. In January 1910, she traveled with the Biograph crew to LA. So a lot of other, a lot of film companies are transitioning from New York to LA, at least for the winter, escaping the, and not just because it's nice to be warm, but They're trying to get longer days and better light for shooting in the West Coast in the winter. And now in this company, actors were not listed in the credits, but audiences noticed and they picked her out. Ah, See what I did there? (laughs) Within weeks of her first film. They picked her out because she's a Pickford? Is that what you meant? (laughs) That was my, well, that was my sort of accidental pun. Oh, good one. Good one. But basically they identified her. They noticed her and were like, oh, we like that woman. And then exhibitors who are kind of like the theaters in turn capitalized on her popularity by advertising on sandwich boards that a film featuring the girl with the golden curls or Blondie Locks or the whoever the Biograph girl was inside. She's not listed in the credits of the company, but the exhibitors know that it's a good marketing tool to let people know she's in it. Blondie Locks. Blondie Locks. Clever. Okay. But she left Biograph that year because I think she was ambitious. She starred in some pictures with IMP, Independent Moving Pictures Company, and then they were absorbed into Universal Pictures in 1912. But she didn't like their creative standards. She kind of went back to Griffith because some of her best work was in his films. But she's kind of, it it sounds like she's in a growth phase where she just wants to learn and try new things and be challenged. So she went back to Broadway to do a play in 1912. And apparently she, you know, She'd achieved her dreams. She'd always wanted to kind of conquer the Broadway stage, but she missed film acting. Like she'd kind of found her niche. So she decided to go back to Hollywood and work exclusively in film. And the previous year, Adolf Zucker had formed what would become Paramount Pictures, which is one of the first American feature film companies. And she joined his team and his roster of stars. Because in those days, you had 
celebrities were affiliated with a company, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't really bounce around. You just worked for them and they gave you, put you in movies with the other people that were in that company. Right. So she, she just started accruing this strong following. Comedy dramas, that was kind of her niche, made her sort of irresistible to moviegoers. And there's one film called Hearts Adrift that was so popular that Pickford asked for the first of her many publicized pay raises based on the profits and reviews. And that film marked the first time her name was featured above the title on the movie Marquis. And she, she's having a big string of successes, basically. So were marquee names a thing? It just wasn't common? I think it wasn't that common yet. When film started in its infancy, you know, the actors weren't in the credits and the actors weren't the big draw. And then all of a sudden, I think it's when the producers of movies and creators of movies realize that the audience is connecting with some of these actors. I don't know enough about the history of film to know when kind of Hollywood celebrities became... This is, I think, the beginning of that, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I keep forgetting that she helped usher in this new industry. Yeah, we're kind of before that all happened, but it's happening right now. That's right. So okay. her ne- the next movie that she did, Tess of the Storm Country, was released five weeks later. And one of her biographers, because there's many, observed that the film sent her career into orbit and made her the most popular actress in America, if not the world. And part of it is, remember, the movies are silent. So anyone in the world can watch them and understand. Great point. Right? It's different. There was a, a universal... I mean, we're living in a totally different world now in terms of accessibility and globalization. But it, there were a lot of things then that couldn't be globe, consumed globally. Yeah, and everything's subtitles, right? Yeah, and there, and not that many. It's not like it's all subtitled. It would be like there would be a whole scene and then they just put like a few words on the screen. Yeah, like exclamations and stuff. <laughs> so only Charlie Chaplin, who slightly surpassed Pickford's popularity in 1916 had a similarly spellbinding pull with critics and the audience. Think of her as, in some ways, a female equivalent. Although I think she hustled a lot harder. Each enjoyed a level of fame, far exceeding that of other actors. And throughout the teens and 20s, she was believed to be the most famous woman in the world, or as a silent film journalist described her, the best-known woman who has ever lived the woman who was known to more people and loved by more people than any other woman that has been in all history. So there. She was, they say, the most famous woman on earth and because there was no language barrier. And even in remote locations overseas, they knew her. In 1916, she signed a new contract with Zucker that granted her full authority over production of films in which she starred and a record-breaking salary of $10,000 a week. In addition, her compensation was half of a film's profits with a guarantee of just over a million dollars, which is closer to $18 million today making her the first actress to sign a million-dollar contract. 
And she wow. also, yeah, she also became vice president of Pickford Film Corporation. Good for her. Right? These are early yeah. days and she's just, they say as women, we should ask for more. And that's what she did. Well, and I don't think there was any precedence for her to not ask for more. Nowadays, by asking for more, it's because someone else set the rules. But because she was involved so early on, she was helping to set the rules. So she wouldn't have known not to ask. Yes and no. I mean, you're right in that. I, I think there was a lot of sexism still at that time. It's the Hollywood how Hollywood functions and some of the choices that she and her and United Artists made, I'm sure were just, how do we want to see this working? But she's also one woman in a sea of men making all the decisions and yeah. strong and men with strong personalities as well. So she, she got her contract, but then as things go on, the contract expires. She didn't like his terms. She went to another company called First National Pictures which agreed to her terms. And then in 1919, along with D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, and Douglas Fairbanks, they formed the independent film production company United Artists. So through United Artists, Pickford continued to produce and perform in her own movies, and she could distribute them how she wanted. You may have heard a quote, a famous quote that gets thrown around even nowadays, the inmates have taken over the asylum. Yeah. So that was made by Samuel Goldwyn about the formation of United Artists. Oh. <laughs> he coined that phrase? Yes, because what are they doing? They're oh taking over control of everything. Right. Before United Artists' creation, Hollywood studios were vertically integrated. They not only produced films, but they formed chains of theaters distributors who were also part of the studios arranged for company productions to be shown in the company's movie theaters and filmmakers relied on the studios for all the bookings. They don't have a lot of control and they have to give up or deal with, put up with a lot of creative interference. But United Artists broke from this tradition, but it was just a distribution company and it offered independent film producers access to its screens, as well as rental of temporarily unbooked cinemas owned by other companies. Basically, all of a sudden, artists are getting creative freedom to make the movies they want to make. That's great. Yeah. And then Pickford and Fairbanks produced and shot their films after 1920 at the jointly owned Pickford Fairbanks Studio on Santa Monica Boulevard. And the producers who signed with UA were true independents and controlling their work to an unprecedented degree. Really, as a co-founder, as well as the producer and star of her own films, she was really, Mary Pickford became the most powerful woman who has ever worked in Hollywood. One might argue to this day. I mean, I don't know, but things, are, things have changed a lot, but the amount of power she had at that time. This is all on the way up, but the arrival okay. <laughs> the arrival of sound was her undoing. That was oh, sort of her demise. Really? She underestimated the value of adding sound to movies, claiming that adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo. 
Oh no. So this is sort of similar to what happened with record companies <laughs> who didn't understand that digital music was going to be important. Okay, yeah. keep going. <laughs> she played a reckless socialite in Coquette. 1929, her first talkie. <laughs> I love that. A role for which her famous ringlets were cut into a 1920s bob. She'd already cut her hair in the wake of her mother's death, but fans were shocked at this transformation because her hair had become a symbol of female virtue. And when she cut it, the act made front page news in the New York Times and other papers. And were her fans disappointed by this? Disappointed by the hair. And I mean, we hear this story a lot with women, but I think she's starting to age out a little bit too, sadly, because she's still pretty young, but she's not the same cute... 20 year old anymore and she's lost this this beautiful hair it's kind of like felicity felicity <laughs> yeah exactly well i had no idea the curly mane was so powerful it's like samson right yeah. i don't know if there's a parallel like if there's anyone who had straight hair that cut it off where people were so outraged that's right Coquette was a success and did win her an Academy Award for Best Actress. And I think it's only, it must have been in the second year or something to that effect. But the public didn't really like her in these more sophisticated roles. Her career was fading as talkies. Talkies became more popular. And a lot of Hollywood actors were panicked by the arrival of the talkies. In March 1928, the Dodge Brothers Hour was broadcast from Pickford's Bungalow, featuring Fairbanks, Chaplin, Gloria Swanson, John Barrymore, and D.W. Griffith, and they spoke on the radio show to prove that they could meet the challenge of talking movies. Listen to our voices. <laughs> we know how to talk. I didn't, they didn't sing it like that. I hope they did. Mm, maybe they did. We know how to talk. Yeah. <laughs> a transition. We're going to sing in every episode now. You started right. something last week. She was no longer... It's kind of creepy that they had women in their 20s playing children and teenagers, but that's what they did then. So now that she's in her late 30s, she really can't do that. She can't play feisty young women, which were so adored by her fans, but she wasn't really suited for the glamorous and vampish heroines of early sound. Basically, she retired from film acting in 1933. She had following a few costly failures. She did a little bit of theater and radio plays, but her acting career had largely faded by 1930. And after retiring a few years later, she did continue to produce films for United Artists. And she and Charlie Chaplin remained partners in the company for quite a few decades. He actually left first in 55 and she followed suit in 1956 and she sold her shares for $3 million, which okay. doesn't sound like that much. No, it doesn't. And I'm surprised that she didn't return to the stage because there's a lot more assortment of actors on the stage, in my opinion. I don't know. I just get the feeling she was so deeply entrenched in Hollywood. And I, if there's definitely some parallels to kind of a rise and fall of a career, which we could have seen in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Like if you're so, so famous around the world, how do you go back to doing something else? I guess she had a lot of fingers and different pies in California. Mm -hmm. 
But a lot of movie actors and TV actors go back to Broadway. Even if it's just for one-offs, because they say it helps polish their skills. Yeah. No, I think it's a great idea and it's a great strategy, especially in today's world. I, I don't know, but I can't imagine what she was thinking, but I can point our listeners in the direction of a good biography at the end if you want to know more about her. She used her stature in the movie industry to promote a lot of causes. And though her image depicted fragility and innocence, she was a strong businesswoman, as we know. And she took control of her career in a very cutthroat industry. In 1916, Pickford and Mrs. Cecil B. DeMille, I guess his wife, helped found the Hollywood Studio Club, a dormitory for young women involved in the motion picture business. Quickly... I will tell you, she was married three times. She married Owen Moore, a silent film actor early on in her career. And he was an alcoholic, much like her mother. Her siblings also became alcoholics. And Owen Moore was also very insecure about living in her shadow, the shadow of her fame. And there were bouts of domestic violence. Now, she did become secretly involved in a relationship with Douglas Fairbanks while she was still married to Moore. Fairbanks and Mary Pickford were on tour around the U.S. to promote Liberty Bond sales for the World War I effort. And she got a divorce and her first husband demanded this $100,000 settlement. I guess he thought he could get some money out of her. And she married Fairbanks days later. Days after her divorce. And basically, this marriage was described as the marriage of the century because they were the king and queen of Hollywood. Yeah. Kind of like the Brangelina of their time. That's right. So they got married in 1920. They went to Europe for their honeymoon, and fans in London and Paris caused riots trying to get to them. And when they came back to Hollywood, there were crowds turning out to hail them at the railway station and other railway stations that they passed through. So even beyond Hollywood and fans, foreign heads of state and dignitaries who visited the White House often asked if they could also visit Pickfair, the mansion in Beverly Hills. So It was called Pickfair. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Fairbanks, Pickford, Pickfair. Oh, a little mashup. Little mashup. So the mashup's been going on for a hundred years. <laughs> yes. You didn't invent the mashup, just whoever came up with Brangelina or Benefer or whatever. That's right. Dinners at Pickfair became celebrity events. Charlie Chaplin, Fairbanks' best friend, was often present. Other guests included George Bernard Shaw, Albert Einstein, Helen Keller, H.G. Wells, Lord Mountbatten, Amelia Earhart. F. Scott Fitzgerald, Noel Coward, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, to name a few. Everybody wanted to be seen there, to be invited there. And her second marriage was basically in the front and center for public viewing. Which That's a pretty good dinner party crew right there. <laughs> I don't know that they were all there on the same night, but... <laughs> yeah, but, but you yeah. know that game where if you could pick any... Six people from history to be at your dinner party. Oh, those would be good ones. Einstein, Conan Doyle. Amelia Earhart. Yeah. And Helen Keller. Like George Bernard Shaw. (laughs) Pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be at that dinner. Yeah. So 
They were constantly on display as America's unofficial ambassadors to the world, leading parades, cutting ribbons, making speeches, and both of their film careers began to flounder as the silent film era came to an end. And he was quite restless, decided to travel overseas and had an affair that became very public. And then they separated and divorced. So that was that marriage was a big deal, but she did move on. She married her third and last husband, actor and band leader, Buddy Rogers, who you may have also heard of. And they adopted two children, but the relationship with the adopted children was all always strained. And the children said their mother was too self-absorbed to provide real maternal love. So who knows? Who knows? Read the biography. How old were they? Do you know? The girl, Roxanne, was adopted as a baby. And the boy was six years old already when he was adopted. Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about Buddy Rogers, but I think it was a tough period of Mary's life. So after she retired, she basically became an alcoholic, which probably came naturally considering her father had been. Her siblings were both alcoholics. Her mother died of breast cancer, but Someone I know who's really into film history says her mother was also an alcoholic. So the deaths, these deaths, her divorce from Fairbanks and the end of silent films left her deeply depressed. And basically she withdrew and became a recluse and she remained entirely at Pickfair, allowing visitors, like only a few outside visitors including her stepson, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. But there weren't a lot of people. And she, by by the mid-60s, she talked to people on the phone and spoke to them from her bedroom. And even when she received an Academy Honorary Award in 76, they sent a TV crew to her house to record her short statement of thanks, which was for the public a rare glimpse into her manor, her mansion. Wow. It's hard to wrap your head around because she was so, so huge. And then she ended her career and her life so alone. Yeah. It's just such an interesting life, such a sad end, but such an impressive set of accomplishments. Yeah, definitely. And she really set the stage for a lot of production in Hollywood that still exists today. Absolutely. she. There's just so much that she's not really known for, I guess, Mm -hmm. but that she's worked on and put forward as a best practice early on. Yeah. She believes that she'd ceased, this is her own idea, who knows what officials thought, but she believes she'd ceased to be a British subject or a Canadian when she married Fairbanks in 1920. So she never bothered to get Canadian citizenship when it was created in 1947. But she did travel under a British Canadian passport, which she regularly renewed. And she never applied for American citizenship. She actually also owned a house in Toronto. Toward the end of her life, she made arrangements with the Canadian Department of Citizenship to officially acquire Canadian citizenship because she wished to die as a Canadian. 
and her request was approved, which they were probably like, yeah, you're a Canadian anyway. (laughs) But she officially became a Canadian citizen and she died in May of 1979. In Toronto? No, I, I don't think she... I think she died in California, but she was a Canadian citizen. She died as a Canadian, not in Canada. Got it. Yeah. Her story is so fascinating. And Eileen Whitfield, I will say, is the world expert on Mary Pickford and lives in Toronto. And if you're interested, you can look up her book. It's great for anyone who wants to learn about early Hollywood. And it's called Pickford, The Woman Who Made Hollywood. I think her work moved generations and she was an example for women in a time before and just after women were receiving the right to vote. And she was standing against strong men who were not used to a little lady demanding what she did. And she understood the power that she held with her name, name recognition and her talent. And paved the way for many women behind her. Totally. So that's Mary Pickford. That's Mary Pickford. That's great. Thanks for the education. Yeah. Happy, We've all heard her yeah. name, but there's so much about that story I'd never heard before. E- even for me. And I, I did love her and I did admire her and I knew about United Artists, but there were a lot of interesting details that I didn't know about. And it was just so much fun to look at the pictures of her and her ringlets and her hair. So I'll absolutely share those on Instagram. Now, Good my one, friend, T. over to you. My Curl Next Door is also about an influential woman with a global audience. Similarly to how you described Mary Pickford, she may actually be one of the best known women in the world or the most famous woman on earth. Ooh. I'm just picking that up based on what you said earlier. Uh, okay. My, okay. So my Curl Next Door is the Mona Lisa. <gasps> Ooh. Or as the Italians pronounce it, the Mona Lisa, or it's also known as La Jaconde. Ooh, I love this. When you said M, I wasn't going to guess that. (laughs) This piece of art, it's considered a masterpiece. It's a waist-up portrait painting by Renaissance artist Leonardo da Vinci. And it's considered the best-known piece of art in the world. No other artwork has been visited as much or written about as much or parodied as much. Let me tell you a little bit more about it. The Mona Lisa was painted in the early 1500s. The name Mona in Italian is equivalent to my lady or ma'am or madame. Okay. And it's thought to be a portrait of Lisa Gerardini. Gerardini. G-H-E-R-A-R-D-I-N-I. I I don't know if that's Gerardini, Gerardini or Gerardini, who was the wife of Francesco del Giocondo, a successful silk and wool merchant in Florence, Italy. That's how the name Mona Lisa came around because it's based on this portrait of a woman named Lisa and Mona means my lady or lady or madame. Right, but I thought her name was Mona. (laughs) Well, you know. had, yeah, so I had never heard this before. Okay. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Giocondo, due to his social standing, it would have been considered quite a coup for him to have secured a commission with Da Vinci. 
And while Gio Kondo was rich and successful and had political connections, at the time, da Vinci socialized with a higher echelon of people, apparently. And actually, da Vinci could be a whole other curl next door because he also has curly hair and is fascinating. Oh, all right. Historians know that da Vinci was painting a portrait of Lisa Gerardini as there was proof of this in, in some of his paperwork, in his journals. Art historians believe it to be true. However, it's not known 100% if the Mona Lisa is the same portrait. They knew he was painting a portrait of Lisa G. And everyone knew that he painted the Mona Lisa, but we don't 100% know if the two pieces are the same. Well, does she, does Lisa G look like the Mona Lisa painting? Yeah, but okay. it's not 100% that the Mona Lisa is Lisa G. Okay. But it's thought to be so. Did she take the credit? Like, that's me. I'm in that famous painting, y'all. <laughs> Yo, she went to her Twitter account and... <laughs> Told everyone that way in 1503. <laughs> Eventually, the art was acquired by the King of France in the 1500s and is still in French possession today. As many people know, it's on display at the Louvre. The Mona Lisa is essentially priceless. It's one of the most valuable paintings in the world with an insurance valuation worth $660 million today. Wow. Let that land. Sorry. $660 million. Wow. For one painting. Yeah. But the most Although, famous painting. That's right. Although they don't, I don't believe they bought the insurance because the premiums would be ridiculous. The money instead is spent on security. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. What's the deal? Why is she so popular? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. <laughs> I'd like to know. Okay. Well, she's thought to bear resemblance to depictions of the Virgin Mary, who in the 1500s was considered an ideal for womanhood. And a little bit more about the art. She's sitting upright, her arms are folded, and her gaze is fixed on the observer. She's in front of an imaginary landscape with winding paths and a distant bridge, and it recedes to icy mountains in the back. The horizon is lined up with her eyes, which is thought to link the model with the landscape and helps contribute to the mysteriousness of the painting. And her eyes seem to follow you around. Regardless of your angle, she's always staring at you. And it's the same, even if you just look it up online and you look at a digital version of it mm -hmm. and walk around the room, she's always following you around. How do they do that? Well... It's based on how they paint the eye and also how your eye interprets what it's seeing. She has no eye hair. There are no eyebrows, nor does she have eyelashes, what? which I, I never knew before. <laughs> Is that like alopecia? Well, okay, so there's two possible reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Historians claim that at this time, it was very common for society to have these hairs removed as they were considered unsightly. Hmm. Another potential theory is that they were there originally, but they disappeared over time because over the last 500 years, the art has been cleaned. So it's possible that the fine hairlines 
were cleaned out. No Hmm. one knows. Okay. Her hair style, how you would define her hair, it's quite fine. Mm -hmm. And it looks to me like a 2C curl type. It's a light curl, heavy wave with a bit of frizz. Yeah, I would concur. I just keep thinking in 2021, what would she look like if she went to a microblading artist? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Give her that Kardashian vibe. (laughs) That could be a good marketing campaign for microblading. Although I don't think it's well known that she has no eyebrows. I've never noticed before. It's not the kind of thing you look for. You notice her eyes and her smile. Mm -hmm. Let me talk a bit more about the smile. Yeah. Because that's quite fascinating as well. Because it sort of flickers. It disappears when you stare right at it. And in fact, her smile appears better when you're looking at it peripherally. And this is partly due to the shadowing and also due to how the eye processes information. And Da Vinci, who was fascinated by science and so much more, was interested in learning about how a smile is made. And he spent time dissecting cadavers to understand the muscles and the skin that make up a smile. And this work influenced his depiction of the Mona Lisa. And it's thought... Yeah. And the more intentional you are about seeing her smile, the more it eludes you. There's all this myth around it, right? That's the Mona Lisa smile. If you try and see it, then it's harder to see. Yeah, exactly. Because the more you look straight at it, the more the smile disappears and just sort of looks like a straight line. And it's because of the shadowing. Interesting. We were talking about slash careers and portfolio careers. And he's like a painter and an inventor. And it's interesting how his other work influenced his painting and his other interests influenced his painting, anatomy and botany and all that. We could just do a Da Vinci episode. There's so much to talk about with him. During the painting of the Mona Lisa, there were changes made during her creation. This is very common. You paint over your last layer and mistakes get painted over. You try something, it doesn't work, and you start over. There's multiple layers to the work. And there's one layer as an example that shows her in a pearly headdress. And it's just interesting to hear these kind of facts about it because of where it landed and how impactful it is. And would it have been as impactful if it had been one of these previous layers? Who knows? The work is considered incomplete. Da Vinci never finished it due to some paralysis in his hand. But it looks pretty complete. I mean, maybe that's why she has no eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Damn it. I saved the eyebrows for last. For last. My hand's paralyzed. Yeah, it doesn't look unfinished. Except. No. Except for the eyebrows. Yeah. (laughs) Now that I know. (laughs) The piece got moved around a bit. It was originally kept at the Palace of Fontainebleau, which was a royal chateau, until Louis XIV moved it to the Palace of Versailles, where it remained until the French Revolution. In 1797, it went to the Louvre, but then moved around a little bit more over the subsequent decades and centuries, such as Napoleon had it in his bedroom for a while. And it was also moved for safety during world wars and during renovations at the Louvre. And it has also been loaned out. But the Louvre is its home base. And it was one of their first artworks to be exhibited once the Louvre became a national museum after the French Revolution. Hmm. Wow, the Louvre has its own 
interesting history, I'm sure. Yes. Oh, totally. So who did they loan it out to? Who's like, can I borrow this, please? (laughs) Well, I'll get to that. Okay. It wasn't until the 1860s that it started to get hailed as a masterpiece of the Renaissance period. Hmm. And while it was highly regarded, it took many more years for it to get popular with the public and didn't get the frenzy that it has today until the 1900s. And its popularity grew once it disappeared off the wall. Hmm. It was stolen from the Louvre in 1911. Some thought by Pablo Picasso. What? Because he was known to have bought stolen art before. So he was implicated and he got hauled into the cop shop and had to defend himself. Pablo. Yeah. (laughs) Come on now. And the Louvre at the time had quarter of a million pieces of art Mm-hmm. but less than 150 guards on staff. And of course, not everyone works at the same time. So there were a lot of gaps. As it turns out, it was stolen by someone who had helped construct the painting's glass case. He was a small-timey artist named Vincenzo Perugia. There are two stories about how he did it. They're pretty much the same, but just the details are slightly different. One story says he went into the museum during open hours hid in a broom closet, walked out with the piece after the museum had closed. The other option is that he stayed overnight in a closet and walked out once the museum was open. Either way, there was a closet involved, lots of time waiting, and he left with it concealed under his clothing. And it wasn't until news spread about her theft, that's when the Mona Lisa became a household name. The thief got busted two years later when he tried to sell it, And his motivation for stealing it was to take it back home, back to Italy. And it was, in fact, exhibited at a gallery in Florence for a couple of weeks, but then returned to the Louvre in 1914. And he did end up doing six months prison time for the theft. And aside from it being stolen, there are a few other examples of vandalism. In 1956, a rock was thrown at the Mona Lisa. It shattered the glass case and caused a speck of paint pigment near her left elbow to chip off. A few years prior to that, another man cut it with a razor blade and tried to steal it. What? Yeah, she's very controversial, clearly. Yeah. In 1974, while it was on loan in Tokyo, there you go, where it had been loaned to, there was a museum in Tokyo, a woman sprayed red paint in its direction. There was no damage. The motivation behind this woman spraying red paint was in protest as the museum had not been providing access for disabled people. In 2009, a Russian woman who had been denied French citizenship bought a ceramic teacup purchased at the Louvre gift shop and threw it towards the Mona Lisa, but it shattered against the glass box. What? Yeah. That sounds kind of odd. Well, it's the most famous painting in the world, and it's certainly the most famous painting in France. Mm -hmm. And this woman was angered about French politics and so found this representational. Okay. Okay. Needless to say, it is stored behind bulletproof glass. The box is also climate controlled for humidity and temperature. It is lighted by a 20-watt LED lamp, which was built especially for the painting, and it ensures the viewer can see the maximum amount of color. The piece is quite dark because it had been varnished over time and the varnish darkens it. Okay. Yeah, it kind of looks dark in a lot of digital versions of it that I've seen. That, yeah, exactly. 
The lamp also helps to minimize ultraviolet and infrared radiation, which could otherwise degrade the painting. So they have to take good care of it. And it is considered well cared for. It's in great condition considering it's over 500 years old. It has been repaired over time. There's been cracks and chips fixed, varnishing, as I mentioned, varnishing applied and then removed and then reapplied and then removed. The frame's been fixed, etc. In terms of visiting it, in 2019, the Louvre introduced a system whereby visitors have to wait less time in line because there's always a huge, huge lineup to get into the Louvre and a massive crowd in front of the painting. Mm-hmm. So with this new system, you don't have to wait forever to get in, but you only have 30 seconds to view the piece. Wow, that's fast. So get a load of this. The piece attracts 30,000 visitors a day, which what? is 10 million people a year. Wow. It's incredible in this day and age when you can kind of see everything online that everybody still wants to go and see that painting in person. Yes. I wonder how many people who are going to see that painting really understand because it's thought that 80% of the visitors who go to the Louvre only want to see the Mona Lisa. It's sort of a tourism checkbox. Right. There's so much great art there. It would be such a waste to not see other amazing works. Yeah. But it's very likely it's the Mona Lisa that brings you in. And it's a very specific kind of collection that they have. It's not for everyone. With only 30 seconds, though, you don't really get time to be with the art. You get time to be... I read this quote. I like it. You get time to be in the room at the same time as the art. Mm -hmm. Which for a lot of people is probably enough. Oh, I saw the Mona Lisa. Click, click, take a photo, move on. Yeah. And what about people just holding up their cell phones? Is it hard to even get near it because everyone's taking pictures of the painting? Well, I think this new system... Helps. Probably helps. Yeah. There is a myth that the one on display is fake. I've heard this rumor before. It's possible the Louvre has an original in a vault somewhere and that the one on display for the millions of tourists is a fake. Because frankly, how many of the visitors would actually know the difference? Not many. But that's rumor. So who knows? There are other copies floating around. This is quite interesting too. In Switzerland, there is an incomplete original version done by da Vinci before he painted the one that we know now. And this isn't so outrageous. That piece must be worth a lot, the one in Switzerland. Even though it's not the real one, it was the the rough draft. Well, and it's still a da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, there's that. And then there's another one at a museum in Madrid, which is believed to have been made by da Vinci's apprentice. It was painted at the same time as the original. It's got a slightly different angle, but very slight, as if the easels were side by side. It's also much brighter and thought to be so because it had not been varnished and repaired as frequently. The two paintings were inspected with infrared technology, which works like an x-ray. The art historians learned that the layers of this work were identical to the real Mona Lisa. I mentioned all the layers. Mm -hmm. You just paint over and paint over. Both pieces had the same layers. He was doing them side by side, maybe. Side by side. Yeah. It's thought that it was his apprentice learning the ropes. And then Mm -hmm. when da Vinci made changes, the apprentice made changes. Oh, is that interesting? Yeah, very interesting. If only you could be a fly on the wall. And that wraps up my curl next door. The Mona Lisa. 
that was very interesting. And I definitely learned a few things and kind of forgot her hair is not so obvious in it. But then when you look, yeah, it is curly. And she definitely, after I said, oh, I'm telling you about the most famous woman in the world, you're like, actually, I might be telling you about the most famous woman in the world. (laughs) And they're both very impressive. Yes. Although, uh, interestingly, it's not the model that was that impressive. It's the painting that was impressive. But I feel like the model doesn't even matter. It's the painting herself is a character. Somewhere I read recently that the Mona Lisa had lost a child in, I don't know if it was miscarriage or one of her children had died and then she was pregnant again and just had a baby. And that that's when she sat for the portrait. And so the half smile because of feeling happy about something new, but not wanting to forget about something sad. Yeah, I came across that same fact that one of the reasons the painting could have been commissioned was to celebrate the birth of a child. Right. Okay. But I hadn't found that information about why she's smiling that way, except to say that Da Vinci... The notations sort of imply that da Vinci had been working on that smile. When he was doing his scientific sketches, he was drawing smiles that looked like the Mona Lisa smile. Oh, that's interesting. And he had the model continually smile while she was being painted. Now that would be annoying, actually, if you're sitting there for days, for three days years. on ends. Three yeah. years? Is that how long it took? They don't know for sure. They Some of the dating says 1503. He came back to it in 1506. He continued to work on it even 10 years later. Keep smiling. Yeah. <laughs> don't stop. Don't move. Don't move. <laughs> so interesting. So that wraps up this week's CND, Curl Next Door podcast. Super fun. Awesome to chat with you and hear these stories. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Catch us on Instagram at Curl Next Door Podcast or Facebook at the same, on Twitter at Curl Next Door Pod. Email us your questions or stories. We want to hear from you too. So don't forget if you have a curly haired story that is something that you've gone through and want to tell us about, we'd love to hear it as it relates to your hair. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye, Steph. Bye, Tamara.